This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for another edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. We appreciate you spending 30 minutes of your precious time as we address the issues confronting America. Today, we will talk about the politics of publishing with Jane Friedman, producer of the Hot Sheet, an essential publishing industry newsletter. Hello, Jane. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you so much for being here. You know, I I reached out to you because I was looking on a uh, website. It's the New Shelves Books. They're a distributing company up there. Amy Collins, the wonderful Amy Collins, very funny, very informative lady. And uh, she puts out an, uh, uh, an email every once in a while. And you had a very, very thorough um, analysis of the current publishing trends, kind of what happened in the pandemic. So I just wanted to kind of get a little bit into that. One of the things that was fascinating to me was you showed a chart which showed that there was amazing growth in juvenile nonfiction and middle grade, I guess, nonfiction. And I think people get on the younger generation as not are not reading. But does that indicate that, hey, there's a there's a good hope for the future in books? Well, in 2020, we saw amazing growth in all sorts of children's publishing. So that would be YA, middle grade, educational materials, a lot of it's self-explanatory, you know, pandemic, homeschooling, education and entertainment. But yeah, the, the YA category has been a growth area since roughly 2010. Yeah. Um, at graphic novels have been mm-hmm. booming for both adults and children. So mm-hmm. yeah, the, the kids are reading. That's great. I guess Harry Potter was really the thing that kind of made that take off. Is that right? That was maybe part partly the beginning, partly the, you know, the start of the YA mm-hmm. piece taking off. So yeah, you could you could pin it to that to start. Yeah, so we've had 5,000 years of books. There's probably more books published than ever before because it's pretty easy to do these days. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about, I you know, I think the New York Times is still the big bear out there. They put the books review out every week. And one of the things I notice is like, I would say nine out of 10 of the reviews in there are from the major publishers, the big five, who are Penguin, Random House, HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster, Hatchet, Macmillan, and then imprints, kind of affiliates that they have. Why do you think that is? I hear about this issue quite a bit. And I think there are some cynics uh, who say it's because it's the big publishers who advertise in the New York Times. So it's mm-hmm. a financial thing mm-hmm. that uh, that this is influencing the choices of editorial. Uh, but I don't really think that's the case. I think Mm -hmm. there are other reasons that factor into it. So first of all, these these big New York houses account for the large majority of what gets published in the US. It's also what you see mostly stocked in bookstores. Mm -hmm. So you you could also partly fault that booksellers focus on these titles, stock these titles in large numbers. Um, And then, but I think also maybe the answer that you would appreciate or that your listeners would appreciate is that big publishers have the money and resources to really push these books mm-hmm. into the hands of influencers. That includes reviewers very early on, like many months before publication. Mm-hmm. 
they're pushing these titles to bookseller associations, librarians, uh, trade shows, you know, and so it creates this kind of momentum. And if the New York Times doesn't review or pay attention to these books that are getting pushed and have all the money behind them, it makes them look like they don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So there, there's more I could discuss there, but maybe you want, you might want to redirect me. Well, well I guess that I think the policy at the review to, to review the books is that they have to be sold in bookstores. But, you know, one of the things you showed is that e-commerce, particularly Amazon, is selling about 50 percent of the books now. So mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. are the reviewers not reaching out and, and trying to grab some of those some of those books that are uh, not by the big five? Well, it, they could certainly be lazy. Um, I think some of the smaller publishers aren't doing the greatest marketing or outreach. I'm not saying they don't do it, but mm-hmm. they don't have the same kind of polar relationships mm-hmm. and maybe they're very selective in what they send mm-hmm. on. They know, too, that the New York Times feels a responsibility to review some of these big books because of well, they're they're considered important to the cultural conversation. Sure. You know, some are written by really big names, and and people want to know what the paper of record uh, thinks about these books. Um, so, you know, the New York Times has a very general general interest audience for the most part, um, and so they feel like they need to be talking about the books that where the authors might be on TV or radio or where the books are in display windows. Um, but I I agree, like. The New York Times, as well as other really super big publications, you know, it is heavily weighted toward the big five and it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's it does make sense to me. And also the New York Times in particular, you know, these publishers are in their own backyard. They right. probably know the people very mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know it's unfair, but relationships play a role here in in what gets attention. Right. And, and I don't think I think we we're picking on the times, but I think Goodreads does the same. I looked at a Goodreads. I think last month they came out and they recommended uh, the first top were like 10, eight of them were big mm-hmm. publishers. Parade Magazine just put out their summer reading list. Yeah. I went through the mm-hmm. first six of them. They were all big publishers. Mm-hmm. So um, what do you think people have to do to kind of find those books uh, that are out there? I mean, the review, I think the push, the book they were, the Times was pushing, pushing last week was on Nick Nixon administration. I'm thinking, like, do we really need another <laughs> review on the Nixon administration, John F. Kennedy, or the Nazis? So where could people find books outside of that? Well, part of it depends on the category or genre that interests you. So certainly, you know, if you're looking for more mystery or crime, there are very specific places I might send you to. Like there's a publication called Crime Reads mm-hmm. online, which you could find lots of new titles from all sorts of places in that publication. But, you know, I would say that look for curated lists by independent booksellers at sites like Mm bookshop.org. That's a wonderful site to kind of dive a little deeper beyond the bestsellers. Mm -hmm. The library is often overlooked. Librarians would love to recommend the hidden gems to you and get you away from the usual suspects. Sometimes looking at bestseller lists in other countries is really instructive and helpful, oh, especially that's a great if you, idea. That's a great dr- idea. Yeah, and and drill down again below just the top few. Sometimes there are category lists that are really useful. Look for works in translation. Um, so if you follow an organization like Word 
uh, Words Without Borders. You'll you'll soon learn about the many works that are translated into English, but almost never get reviewed mm-hmm. by by media. But they're very deserving. Mm. Um, and then the last, you know, I mentioned Crime Reads earlier. There's a its sister publication, much bigger, more general interest is Lit Hub. If you mm-hmm. like literary mm-hmm. types of work, literary fiction, literary nonfiction, serious literature with a capital L, mm-hmm. LitHub was founded and it's run by people in the independent publishing community. So that's a good place to go. That's excellent. And uh, one of the things too is, and and you know, I've had a few books, just small publishers, and I know a lot of writers, and they go through the whole aging process. So years ago, you wrote a letter to the agent, say, "Hey, I got this book idea." They say, "Hey, I love it." They go to the publisher now. You send to the agent, you got to tell them how many followers you have. You have to tell them what podcast you're on. You have to. There's actually a guy in California whose job now is to help people find agents. So, you know, before it was you, your agent would find the publisher. Now there's a, a step in between. And I noticed that a lot of the top 10 lists have a lot of celebrities on it. Is that the reason they, you know, celebrities are going to sell the book? Yeah, it's it's risk mitigation by the publishers. They they are very guilty of signing celebrities to book deals, even when those celebrities are using ghostwriters or really have no business <laughs> writing and publishing a book. <laughs> it's especially true with um, with children's literature, you know, where the celebrities do the picture books or whatever. And that's very frustrating to authors. Yeah, and we've had the politicians do that, right? I guess, and I, I, I mean, Hillary Clinton probably what you know wrote "It Takes a Village," and you know, but uh, you know, as soon as someone puts their name on, I mean, it's just it just explodes. You know, that's uh, that's it. so. Talk a little bit about the trends last year. One of the things you mentioned was people were going back and reading books that were kind of. Uh, classics. And uh, is that something where they knew, hey, I'm guaranteed to get a good read out of this? Yeah, there were people who wanted comfort. They wanted something that would offer reassurance or an escape to a better time. And But the, the interesting thing from a, from a trends perspective is that this isn't all that new in terms of the older titles doing well. That's something that's been going on for 10 years now. We call it the backlist, the older titles. That's right. I'm sorry. That's the right word. Yeah, yeah. It's an insider term. So that's the backlist has been growing as a percentage of overall sales. Uh, It was around half and half uh, in 2010, and it's now closing in on 70% backlist. Wow. Some people find this very anxiety-inducing. Like If you're a debut author, Mm -hmm. you don't really want to hear that. But it's, I think part of it is just the way we look and shop and find books now. The things have become very flat online. You know, you don't have just the new books in the front of store. You you can search everything that's ever been published. Yes. yes. So I think partly we're seeing just the result of things like Amazon. Right, right. And, and, and but I mean, even I mean, even the Amazon list is driven by you know, the ability for people to promote. I, I talked to a woman up in uh, New Long Island, Dina Santorelli. So Dina won the um, mm-hmm. self-published book award this year in gen- genre fiction um, uh, for um, her work in the red. And I talked to her and said, you know, why Dina, you're, you're a great writer. Why aren't you getting, you know, um, into it? She said, you know, I, I started to going through the literary agents and I, and I went through that and she said, I just, I'm not going to play that game, but, but, I mean, uh, she's got some great stuff and, you know, people 
it would be great if people can get to those writers. Uh, but I guess there's a price to pay uh, for that because then she's really got to push that book, right? Yeah, it's if you're not with a big publisher, it, there's a lot of patience and persistence that goes into spreading the word about your book. And I find that most independent authors who are successful, you know, it, we're talking about like a five to 10 year journey and many right. titles. Right. That, not that that isn't true for traditionally published mm -hmm. authors, but I just think it's, it feels a lot more lonely and isolating when you don't even have, you know, uh, an editor, marketer, or publicist you can call up who is supposed to be p at least partly responsible for your right. work. So the pandemic closed down a lot of the uh, live events, you know, book signings and things like that. What kind of impact did that have on the industry, do you think? It mainly affected booksellers. So the bricks and mortar stores, especially independent stores who maybe weren't up to speed on online uh, sales or e-commerce. So actually, you know, book publishers of all sizes have done really well. Book sales are up tremendously. Um Print sales are up, ebook sales are up, audiobook sales are up, all categories of books are up in sales. Like no one underperformed in 2020 except for bookstores. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they certainly felt the lack of that store event. Mm -hmm. And while, you know, lots of people went to Zoom and they tried to replace that with virtual events, and that did help in some regard. It helped, it helped broaden the audience of some of these stores because of accessibility. Um, but it was just much harder to sell a book in that environment uh, for them. And some were more successful than others. So when you look at the trends that happened in the pandemic, what do you think is going to last once we come out of this thing? Well, there was a very interesting report that came out from McKenzie showing how people's behavior, uh, any new behaviors that were adopted during the pandemic, would they stick that way? and not go back to the so-called normal behavior pre-pandemic. And books, books were shown as one of the biggest outliers at the far end of the graph as the online buying behavior that would stick and continue post-pandemic. So that's additional bad news <laughs> for the booksellers who might have lost sure, their business. Sure. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see that continue, and it's just accelerating an existing trend. Uh, and I think we're going to continue to see that uh, backlist movement because as more people go online, it just reinforces that that flatness I spoke about earlier. Now, um, you were talking about the you know the bricks and mortar people, Barnes and Noble, uh, big places like that. They've been kind of shrinking, right? And the yeah. independent bookstores have been shrinking. Is it has that is it kind of a crisis level right now? I guess it depends on what you consider a crisis. I mean, it's a it's a crisis for them. And there are some folks who are really, really concerned that literary culture will suffer without the independent bookstore. I think that personally, I think that shows a lack of imagination about what could take the place of the bookstore. I don't think bookstores are going anywhere. There are a lot of bookstores out there that weren't all that healthy to begin with. And so this, you know, this is going to weed out the people who didn't have a strong foundation. So I'm not I'm not concerned about a crisis, but certainly but but my opinion is probably not the majority opinion if you're on the more literary side of the fence to people who feel like we've got to have independent bookstores to foster reading and book buying and to keep the power out of the hands of 
big tech as well. <laughs> That's great. How about yourself? Now, what are your reading habits? Where do you buy your books? That kind of thing. I am a very devoted reader of journalism and nonfiction. I, I've religiously read The New Yorker from cover to cover since mm -hmm. 1998. Mm -hmm. So that takes up a good deal of my reading time. Um, and I, I'm part of the uh, group that is pretty excited about the move to Substack. Like there are a lot of journalists and other people who are now starting their own newsletters free and paid. And mm -hmm. I subscribe to about 150 of them. Wow. And partly it's my job sure. to stay on top of these things. But I really, I like this trend. I hope it doesn't end. As far as books, I like reading stuff that's been forgotten. So I guess I fall into the backlist trend. I just bought a book actually over the weekend that I saw mentioned in a roundup. It's a weird title. I want to see if I can pull this up. Um, what was it? It was something I found through one of my newsletters I subscribed mm -hmm. to called um, Cool Tools by Kevin Kelly. Do you know mm -hmm. that? that no, newsletter? I haven't heard it. No. So there are book recommendations in there, and that's where I found this one. It's called Homo Ludens, mm -hmm. A Study of the Play Element in Culture. Wow. So that's, that's on my uh, nightstand at the moment. I lived in some small towns and just used to love to go to the little bookstore and get a coffee and sit in the corner and check all the books out. <laughs> Are you one of those people too? I was. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's right. We're we're gone. We're done. <laughs> uh, take I, a walk, geek boy. <laughs> certainly during uh, college, I was someone who went to the bookstore every single weekend. Um, and that continued through most of my 20s. And but it it really came to a halt, I would say, into my mid 30s with the really with online. Mm -hmm. And so I do buy online from a range of sources. Mm -hmm. I buy from Amazon, I buy from bookshop, I buy direct from publisher, I buy off author websites. So I kind of spread the love. It depends on the book and, you know, just the nature of the purchase. It's just so easy, right? You put a click and boom, it's at your doorstep. I mean, it's just so easy, especially in the pandemic. But one of the things you mentioned, too, was that Target and Walmart are doing a lot better. People are getting a lot of books from them. Yeah, that was the, the unexpected bit is that Amazon, in fact, lost a tiny, tiny bit of market share for, for sales to Walmart and Target. And I assume you probably want to throw Costco in there right, and maybe right, some other right. big box sure. stores. Um, so it's, and it's because those businesses remained open. And I think the larger trend, uh, which I spoke to recently in, in the piece at my site was that during the pandemic in particular, people are seeing the importance of where they put their money, uh, for their purchases. Like, are you going to put it into the local community? Which businesses are you going to support? Right. Um, and so people have expressed much more openness to buying from places they would have never purchased before online. So because right. they want to support artists or smaller businesses or things that they want to see survive this difficult time. Now, tell us a little bit about the hot sheet and kind of what you do. So the hot sheet is the email newsletter that I write and publish. It comes out every two weeks and it's industry analysis for authors. So for anyone who's trying to make a real professional go of, of authorship, 
making money, making their career last, it's for those people. So it's really looking at what's what changes are happening in traditional publishing. If you're self-publishing, how do you maximize what you're doing through online retail and and other trends? That's great. And then your website is jeanfriedman.com, correct? That's right. All right. And and when people go there, what will they see? It'll be an introduction to the many things that I do. So I have free newsletters and the paid newsletter and a blog and courses. And so there's a lot to explore there no matter what stage you're at. And you are a writer. Um, you, you, I guess your latest book was The Business of Writing. Is that right? Yeah, The Business of Being a Writer. That came out from University of Chicago Press a few years ago. So it's kind of like the... Um, I, it's almost like a textbook. It's it's trying to explain the entirety of publishing sure. in one go. <laughs> yeah, and and it's still very popular. I I see it on there, and um, it seems to still be doing well. So that's good. That's really great. So uh, you practice what you preach. That's uh, that's wonderful. Well, we appreciate you being on with us, and we hope to have you back again. Our books are always, especially with the pandemic. I mean, it's heartening to see people uh, reading more. You know, because everybody says, "Oh, we're just a three three second attention span, you know, but uh, <laughs> it is heartening. And I was glad to read uh, your article. Where can people see that article that you uh, publish on New Shelves? Uh, that's at my site at janefriedman.com. You can find it under the blog. I would recommend it. it was a really great piece. Well, thanks for joining us. And again, we'll have you on another time. Thanks, Jane. Thank you so much. All right. Let us welcome our technical producer, Brad, maybe the Wizard of Pods, in to chat a little bit about books. How are you, Brad? I am great, sir. Uh, a wonderful interview with uh, Miss Friedman there. Miss, Ms. Fre- I don't know, Mrs. Friedman. We didn't catch that. <laughs> she was a very interesting lady. Yes. And uh, she, she, she really keeps a, a Hawkeye on the publishing industry, and her um, her blog and, and her webpage are just really informative about it. I, I really enjoyed um, the list that she gave us, kind of where we could look for books that are kind of outside the mainstream, and particularly the one about the library, because, you know, the library people, I mean, they're about books. That's their life, you know? Yes, so exactly. if they're recommending a book, I think you got to take a second look. But I, I kind of, I, I fall into that big five trap because they're the they're the books that are thrown in your face i just finished reading uh listening actually i've been listening to a lot of books because i'm in the road a lot and uh last night listening to uh madam speaker by susan page usa it's about nancy pelosi and oh, very good, very um, good. i thought i thought it was a little too pro pelosi um you know i think she's <laughs> i think she's done some wonderful things and you know obviously she's a force but uh, the thing I was really fascinated with was her days in Baltimore, her younger days, which were pretty oh, yeah. cool. And her father was the mayor there, and her brother was the mayor there. So she kind of grew up in that um, that, that big, you know, um, knuckle politics kind of thing where she gets her uh, toughness from. How about you? What's books been like in your life? My dad worked in a print shop. Oh, uh, wow. Pa- paperbacks and magazines. No I mean, he was kidding. constantly bringing wow. home books. That's awesome. And Unfortunately, like 90% of it was either romance novels or things way <laughs> above my head. So, uh, but, you know, there was some good stuff like, you know, Danny Dunn, Boy Detective was my Harry Potter. Uh, uh-huh. It was like a series of books. I wouldn't yes. even call them novels. They were yes. like something you could fly through in, a, in an afternoon, really. Right. Um, and then I remember uh, specifically my dad coming home with a paperback called The World According to Garp. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, he, my dad did not read, although he worked in a print shop. So he was just like, yeah, here, knock yourself out. I read The World According to Garp when I was like 11 years old. Wow. So that's what happened I mean, to you, The World According to, you know, to Brad. I mean, you, 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 you kind of absorbed that. Well, you know, the funny thing is, if that book was called The World According to, to Steve, I, yeah. I wouldn't have. <laughs> Garp, what's this? I thought it was about an alien. I don't know. An alien has come to Earth, and now he's going to tell us what the world's like. That's what I thought. And then I'm reading this book. I'm like, I don't know what's going on here, but this is a page turner. Yes. Did you ever read read that book? I didn't, but I remember the movie was a big deal because Robin Williams was the guy that played Garth. Well, yeah. Even the movie was not suitable for 11-year-olds. Yeah. Was it it Irving that wrote that? John Irving? Yeah, John Irving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was just sex, uh, you know, a transgender character. Wow. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. He was kind of an interesting guy. I read, um, the prayer to Owen Meany, which is another book he did. And that was kind of fascinating because it came out around the time that Ross Perot was running for president and Owen Meany was kind of a little Ross, Ross Perot. He was just kind of a strange dude, but, um, you know, had that kind of, um, you know, radical, not radical, yeah. but, uh, you know, just that difference about them and the strangeness about them. But it was a really, um, it was a really interesting, uh, read. I just got finished with, uh, Empire of Pain, another big five book, but that was written about the Oxycontin creators, the Sacklers who we've talked about a, a few, a few episodes ago. And that was pretty fascinating in the sense that, you know, the Sacklers back in the fifties were the ones who promoted Valium and, um, Yes. Back then, everybody was saying, hey, this is a wonderful drug, but, you know, I think mm-hmm. people were getting hooked on it. And they were like, nah, 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 I can't hook, you know. It's almost no. the same page in the 90s, you know. But again, you know, the book was just really over the top, um, I thought, you know, bashing the Sacklers. And at the end of the book, you kind of figure out why. But, I mean, obviously, those guys were, they were all about money. And they, they had yeah, no of concern. Course. They had no concern about what their medicine was doing. Of course, and they wrote it off as saying, well, you know, people abuse it. We can't help that. I mean, we, we can't help the fact that people abuse it. <laughs> Not that they were flooding the market with it and making bazillions, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. But I, I thought it was also interesting, you know, what she was saying. And I was, I did talk to this woman, Dina Santos. Torelli. So she won the uh, first place award at the Writer's Digest for general genre fiction. And um, they talked to her. And, and as I was saying, she she just said, hey, I'm not playing that big five game. I'm not going to I'm not going to go to the literary agents. I'm just I'm putting it out. And, and, and but the sad thing is, people, I guess they don't really get to read that or get to because there is no promotion machine and there is no, um, you know, thing to put it out there. I get. I, I'm uh, a, a bit uh, out of my league talking about this, but I, I vaguely uh, remember some people putting, you know, their books out, like you know, in, in a digital format only, mm-hmm. making some bank, you know, mm-hmm. getting mm-hmm. to some people, enough people for them to to make a, a decent living. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's certainly not going to sell uh, five million copies. But I mean, if I wrote a book and put it out by myself, and and a hundred thousand people downloaded it and read it, I, I would be. I would be happy with that. And then I would hope from that you get, you know, your word of mouth or maybe word of mouth only gets you to a hundred thousand. I don't yeah, know. That's right. And it's also funny, like just mentioning like people, like they were, I saw this survey, it may have even been in uh, uh, Freeman's uh, blog. Uh, 87% of the people surveyed said they want to write a book. And I meet a lot of people that said, Hey, I got a book idea and this is a great book idea. You should do this. And uh, 87% of the people 
uh, say they're going to write it. I want to say like maybe uh, some minuscule percent actually do it. And I remember like this one guy told me like the first rule of writing is sit your butt in the chair. I mean, like it's just the discipline of doing it. And um, I I think people got to, you know, if you're a nighttime person, then you write at night. If you're a morning person, you write in the morning. And it's uh, but it's still I mean, right now is there's more books being produced than ever in history of of humankind and uh 5,000 years since the first book was printed so uh there's, that's, there's that's, cra- that's crazy there's, 5,000 wow, years 5,000 years of reading so it's really interesting because I, I heard this recently and I thought it was great they said the cheapest vacation you could ever take is buying a book and I thought wow, wow that is really because my dad was a bus me- city bus mechanic but he read more books than anybody I was tripping over books in the house and he would read those Jane Mishner things that would start at the beginning of time Jane Mishner always started, and then you got it was one was called Poland one was called the Chesapeake and he would just and my dad would just sit in his room and he'd be traveling you know and that was just a wonderful thing and you, you were mentioning the Kindle and I think you know right now it's just so wonderful to have the different avenues so we have Audible which I said I read on the, I listen to on the road makes the trip go quickly but uh, the Kindle's amazing because yeah. they're, they're fairly cheap and uh, you know it's great to have on your phone if you're waiting in the DMV line um, you got nothing to do. You just start reading. And, and uh, you know, we're really fortunate to be in the time that we are because um, we do have all that um, all that opportunity. So everybody get in a book now. Well, wait, wait, now, before you wrap up, let me ask you, because you seem to be a nonfiction reader. Uh, very much so. Yeah. Very what much so. do you have a, a book uh, that is a piece of fiction that you hold? Dear well, your yeah, there were a couple like The Godfather. Um, and that's such a guy book. But I so mean, Mario. Uh, yeah, Mary Puzo. Uh, so yeah. that was interesting in the sense it was the first one I read that really taught me that good books are about stories within stories, you know. And oh, he, yeah. and and so you know Puzo did this where he's just kind of driving down the highway, and then he says, "Ah, take an exit here, check this out." And then you get back on the highway, and then, oh, I'll try this exit. So there was this great, uh, there was this great uh, story about Luca Brasi, who was the enforcer, and it's not mm-hmm. in the movie, but it was it was, oh. a, it was a great story about him and how uh Corleone met Vic Nabito Corleone met and just fascinating and why he was so loyal to him but it's not and and those were the kind of little stories that you know kind of took you away from the main and then you went back it was just a wonderful uh a wonderful thing so and I liked um I loved Shoeless Joe by Joe Kinsella and that was of course uh, the the Field of Dreams uh yeah. book and um you know, I, Kinsella was just a really interesting writer, and I thought he was, um, I thought he, um, you know, did a great job in capturing that whole thing. I thought the book was better than the movie. Most times, I think they are. And um, the other one that was really interesting, my favorite book of all time, is Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. And oh, uh, yeah. interesting. All right. Well, the you know, the play got all the attention and all, but yeah, that book, the thing, and I think it, you know, the thing about reading Victor Hugo's Les Miserables is that is happening today. I mean, that is, you could read that today. He talks about the lottery and how everybody wants to win the lottery and they're banking on winning the lottery because that's going to save their miserable lives. And it was just, uh-huh. uh, yeah, it was just really good. And it's long, though. It's about a thousand pages. It took me a while to get through it. But yeah, it's just a great read. I love a good book like that, that you you know, you know you're going to be reading for a while. Yes. Because then, because then it, it just lasts longer. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that about Les Mis. 
Uh, let me bore you with one more quick story. Not at all. Uh, not too long ago. Well, shoot, already over 10 years ago, uh, maybe 15, I was reading uh, The Jungle, mm -hmm. Upton Sinclair. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. It was it was a truly great book. And then I, sometimes, a lot of times I'll read something old and classic, and then I'll read like, you know, something off the bestseller list. And I went just kind of a major coincidence from the jungle to fast food nation. That's interesting because the jungle was about the meat industry, right? Yes. yes. And, and immigrants and yes. how awful yes. they were treated in that industry. And right. then you read right. fast food nation and there's like parts of fast food nation where you're like, holy crap. So going I, on. I just read this book. <laughs> This was happening, you know, at the, at the turn of the century in Chicago, and now it's happening in the Midwest. That's right sad, isn't now. It? It's yeah. sad. It's really sad. And uh, yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, I like to read the night fiction because it's just I, the real, even movies. I, I never really got into like very imaginative movies. I just wanted something real, like this is happening. This could happen, you know. So uh, that that's fascinating about the the, the jungle and. Uh, Oh my God! If you read them back to back, you're like, the more things change, yes. the more things stay the same. Yes, that's right. And um, yeah, so it, it's really fascinating. Sometimes when I read books like, you know, like a Les Mis or one of those monster, you know, James Joyce or something, I just am blown away by the brilliance of some of these people. You know, it's just like, wow, man, I could never reach that. I mean, that's just, yeah. And and you know, people always say to me, oh, I can't write, I can't write. Well, what is writing? Writing's thinking on paper. That's what it is. If you can think, yeah. you can write. And mm -hmm. that the, the fact that some of these guys, like even Star Wars, like they could sync up that whole world and Harry <laughs> Potter. I mean, how do they do that? But who knows? I mean, it's a gift, I guess. And we're glad they share it with us. Yes, I I, I concur. Okay. <laughs> hey, thank you, buddy. You have a great week. And uh, before too, we close, let us say thank you to our executive producer, Mike Gugat. And, of course, our technical producer, Brad Maybe, the Wizard of Pies. We want to thank Dave, our announcer, and our contributing voice talent, John Tursus over Tampa Bay. We want to thank, we got some nice uh, um, likes from Bulgaria of all places, which was yeah. wonderful to see. And uh, we do appreciate everybody supporting us. And if you want to send us an email, we've got a new email, retailpolitics.jur at gmail. Retailpolitics.jur at gmail. Send us your questions, your thoughts, your concerns. And we will be back next week with a thrilling edition of Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, Always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.